Hello and welcome to today's timely discussion of European economic competitiveness. My name is Jason Oxman. I'm the president and CEO of the Information Technology Industry Council, or ITI. ITI is the global trade association of the technology industry. We're proud to represent 80 of the world's most innovative technology companies, global technology companies, including companies from across Europe, across North America and Asia and around the world. It's my pleasure to be your host and moderator for today's important discussion. And I want to start by welcoming all the people who are here in this full room here in Brussels, as well as those who are joining us online for this discussion today. European innovation is at a critical juncture for investment and innovation in technology. And the elections here to be held in Europe in June will mark the start of a new political cycle for the EU, but also the start of a new policy cycle as well. And the new mandate that comes in at the end of this year will also mark a reflection on the EU's goals for global competitiveness, for technology innovation, and for future leadership. And the last five years of this mandate have certainly seen an incredible wave of groundbreaking rules across a variety of policy issues of importance, not only to the technology industry, but to all industries and to Europe's global competitiveness, rules on platforms and data governance, on uh, critical infrastructure, sustainability, AI, cybersecurity, and acute global challenges. Now, looking ahead, leaders will, of course, have to determine which policy approaches can best help Europe into the future reap the benefits of technology innovation, and also address acute global geopolitical challenges at the same time. It's imperative from our perspective at ITI that EU policymakers remain laser-focused on addressing the pressing issues of the day, including technology, environmental and sustainability issues, and security policy, while transforming all of these challenges into opportunities for European business and European citizens. Policymakers can support investment and innovation in trade in the EU while advancing digital policy leadership. And today, we're gathered here in Brussels and online to have an important discussion about the European approach to meeting these important goals. ITI has just published this week a new Vision 2030 document which can help Europe address all of these important challenges and opportunities while remaining competitive and resilient. We'll put up on the screen now a QR code that you can use to scan and view ITI's full report. The Vision 2030 document that you'll see when you scan that QR code, and those in the room can scan it as well as many are doing, I'm pleased to report. Uh, this shows the ITI vision for EU's own vision for a competitive single market that supports uh, compliance to and implementation of many of these new rules that we've seen during the current mandate, and also is focused on increasing global competition with partners and allies that will help Europe stay at the forefront of innovation and demonstrate global leadership. Now, I'm excited to discuss all of these issues today with a group of leaders from across EU institutions and industry that are at the forefront of the discussions taking place 
to implement all of these issues. Today, over the course of two panel discussions, you'll hear from Renate Nicolet, who is the Deputy Director General of DG Connect here in Brussels. You'll hear from several members of the European Parliament who are at the forefront of these issues, Anna-Michel Asamakopoulou, Iban Garcia del Blanco, Mia Petra Kumpolonatri, and Axel Voss. You'll also hear from the European Investment Bank, which is very focused on enabling European businesses to secure the financing necessary and the economic cooperation necessary to succeed in this environment. So we're pleased to have today Luciana Tomatsai Schwand, who is the head of the European Investment Bank's Global Affairs Division. And finally, to help us tie together these business and policy challenges, Hendrik Bourgeois from Intel, the Vice President of European Government Affairs, will join us to share the tech industry's perspective on all of these issues. Now, as I mentioned, we have both a full in-house audience here in Brussels and an online audience. And we want to make this event today interactive. So we have a great technology tool called Slido that's available to you, both in the room and online, to share your own views and to ask questions of the panelists. So if you use the QR code that's now on your screen, that will lead you to the Slido app for use uh, in the Q&A portion of our program. Slido is a platform where you can see your questions directly after you pose them. And if you have a question for a specific panelist, please uh, identify that question. And please make sure to identify yourself when you're asking that question as well. You can also participate on your chosen online platform in this, in this discussion by using the hashtag ecocompetitiveness. And now, on behalf of our entire event team, it is my great pleasure to welcome our first speaker. And she is Renate Nicolai, who is the Deputy Director General of DG Connect. And she's one of the leaders on the Commission's agenda of tech policy. Renate Nicolai is a veteran of EU policy discussions, having served in various roles in the European Commission, including head of cabinet, for Vice President Jarova, and she's here to provide us some important insight into how the Commission is viewing digital policy at the end of this mandate and heading into the next. So it is my great pleasure to invite Renate to the stage to deliver her remarks. Renate, welcome. Thank you. Please. Thank you very much, Jason. Um, thanks for having me on this um, important debate, which is quite timely because we are indeed at the moment um, at an important moment in uh, preparing for a year of change um, with elections for the European Parliament, with a change in the Commission, with the design of uh, the future agenda um, you know, for, the, for the next mandate. Um, in uh, the tech uh, industry and in the tech kind of policy area, I would say that uh, what we have done in this mandate is quite remarkable because I think what we have achieved is a mix of 
um, smart regulation, you have mentioned uh, some of the issues that we have tackled and they were ready to be tackled because we had prepared it quite well in the previous mandate. All the rules on bringing accountability and responsibility to platforms, the DSA and the DMA, were also um, for the big platforms, the European Commission as the enforcer. Uh, I think they are important in the, in the bigger scheme of things. But we have also, um, with our uh, rules on the AI Act, which will hopefully be adopted uh, still very soon, uh, of course been pioneering even more worldwide to kind of uh, give a, a, a statement for uh, what AI we want in Europe, a regulatory uh, innovation-friendly framework that will also tomorrow be accompanied by an AI innovation package that will um, you know, be uh, adopted by the Commission tomorrow because the idea on AI is really on the one hand that we want to show from the beginning what AI we want in Europe uh, and also converge on that with um, allied partners in the world but on the other hand also be give a clear indication on a pro-innovation and AI friendly direction and that's going to be uh, the key of tomorrow's package. Um, uh, and on the other hand, we have made quite a paradigm shift when it comes to data economy. With the data strategy that we have adopted um, in the beginning of the mandate and the acts that followed, the Data Governance Act and the Data Act, um, we are building on the important kind of GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is uh, a testimony of who we are in Europe. We stand by the protection of data as an individual right. On the other hand, we want to use data um, in the data economy. And that's what the Data Act and the Data Governance Act are about, um, to really kind of get into a data market uh, in the EU, uh, to have data spaces, and I think that's all important. Um, so we've really kind of, you know, covered the ground right quite uh, well. We have uh, made uh, huge steps in terms of smart regulation also in the cybersecurity field, which are important and also innovative, because not only on the preventive side, but also more on, more on the potential response side. Apart from the smart regulation, this mandate has been uh, marked also by um, a, a clear determination to meet the standards in the tech race. Um, and I think what we are seeing when it comes to, um, uh, for instance, the work on raw materials, uh, the work on chips, um, or now also the situation where we are with the supercomputers, um, that we are really worldwide leading again on supercomputers shows that if we kind of bang our heads together, we can also make industrial kind of changes in Europe and bring about a, a technological um, a high level in Europe. The third point that I would add is the political framing of all that. Uh, I think it's important for the digital policy, the tech policy of the EU, and to see that we have framed us with the 2030 digital decade policy targets. We want to be in a totally different place when it comes to public administration, skills, business, connectivity um, uh, in, in, in 2030. And we are not yet there. Uh, which means looking ahead, there's more to be done um, in, the, in the next mandate. Of course, you know, I'm not in a position to give you uh, real details of uh, what will be uh, the next mandate, but what I can kind of share with you is uh, what I see, uh, and these are my personal views, as the key parameters uh, that will probably guide us. Um, and I think some of it is already pretty much described in the, in the work that is ongoing. For instance, the work that the former prime ministers Letta and Draghi are working on, on their papers on single market and competitiveness or also the big work that we have started in this Commission on Economic Security, where also uh, tomorrow in the, in the Commission there will be a follow-up uh, adopted, and which is certainly a theme for the future. So 
Um, when it comes to competitiveness, and I think it, 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 it kind of echoes well with your position paper also, I think it's, it's very important that we continue what we have started doing in this mandate quite well. It's a little bit of a different approach um, that, you know, instead of always kind of looking only at the global scale, uh, to rather say, look at the EU and say, where are our internal challenges? Where are our weaknesses? You know, the supply, supply chain challenges that we saw, the raw material challenges that we saw, to really identify those well and address them forcefully. I think that's part of the competitive agenda that we will have to do. Um, and, but of course, competitiveness also means that we really make a good offer for business um, uh, that Europe is a good place to invest in. And here, I think we have to do so much more in being in the next mandate clear about our innovation path. Um, I think, as I said, the AI uh, is a good example. Regulation combined with support for innovation. So I think if you look at the AI Act with the AI package coming tomorrow, I think that's, that was the promise from the beginning, ever since the white paper. The idea was to give a clear statement on regulation, but also to push for the innovation. Um, I think, uh, on the other hand, it's also important in the next mandate that we continue to build on our strength. A strength, you know, in some areas that we can develop much further, especially if we go into a more digital um, use in, in, in many sectors. Um, and, and, of course, address uh, the skills, which will be so uh, inevitably important if we really want uh, to, to meet uh, the competitiveness of the future. The single market is probably still the biggest promise for all of us in the European project, and it remains unfulfilled. And I think, therefore, also from uh, the tech policy side, uh, there's a lot to do um, in the next mandate um, to really kind of work on a better single market. If you look at the connectivity sector, for instance, there are potential gains uh, to be made if we have uh, a debate on the future digital networks, also from a single market perspective. And this is very much what we want to kind of present also when we present in February the white paper on the future digital connectivity and the future digital networks to really enable us also for the next commission to kind of you know, prepare the ground for that. Um, I think it's also important that we face the reality that as you also said in your paper, there's a feeling of there's simply too much regulation coming and we don't see through it anymore uh, and there's too much burden on us and how can you help? I think it will be a key task for the next commission to um, add simplification to what we have on the table. So there will be a need to kind of look at all the kind of um, uh, massive regulation that we have developed. Are there possibilities to simplify that? Also the kind of the obligations for business in these regulations. Can there be a simplification achieved? Uh, can we kind of, you know, also with digital means, for instance, achieve simplification there? I think there's a key role for us, also as Commission, to support uh, the enforcement of the regulation. Um, we are not always the enforcer ourselves. The DSA and the DMA is rather an exception to the rule. But for instance, if I take an example like the Data Act, we have a role to play to ensure that the wonderful potential of the Data Act, that we really untap the potential of data use in the internal market, that this kind of is explained to all sectors. As who, who might not even know uh, that they could be part of the data economy uh, in the way that we wanted to design it with the Data Act. 
So there's an active role for the Commission to really kind of be a partner in effective enforcement. And an important other aspect of enforcement is that we ensure the coherence of enforcement. Because there are so many different actors, so many different authorities, the Commission can play a role in ensuring that at Member States' level there is really um, a coherent approach. I think we should also look at uh, further reducing barriers. I think that will be an important kind of, you know, future theme for the next Commission to really kind of, I'm, I suppose, it will be in the mission letters of all the Commissioners and Vice Presidents of the future um, uh, Commission to kind of, you know, really make that a key uh, aspect together with better regulation. Again, many things that you have also said in your, um, in your manifesto. When it comes to the global scene, um, I think next to, as I said, single market competitiveness, uh, the economic security, and there's a clear link to the international context, will be um, a very important aspect. And I think it will be one where we will have to face also um, that we continue with the approach that we stand for uh, and that we have developed in this mandate. Um, it's about our interests, also when we are acting globally, but it's also about our vision. And it's, again, if you take the example, very visible there, that our idea is always that we also want to converge with others or something that we did also already on privacy, you know. We, we kind of sometimes go ahead, but also with, with the idea of having convergence at the international level. So I guess that this will be an important um, aspect. Allies will be important. We will have to watch the international scene, how that develops. There are important elections also elsewhere in the world, uh, and that will, of course, determine on whether your wish, for instance, for deeper transatlantic uh, cooperation will be you know, less or, 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 or more easy, but definitely allies like the US will be an important kind of player for us in this. Um, I think an important aspect um, in the next mandate should be data, uh, data in the, in, the, in the broader sense, uh, because um, uh, we have a good basis with the GDPR. We've done a lot on the Data Act. Uh, you know, we have done a lot on international data transfers. But probably we really need to kind of, you know, look in the next mandate whether we've done enough to really enable everybody to really get the access to the data, have the best possible solutions on international data transfers, because everything that we want to do with the AI Act and with the next digital kind of, you know, step also on future connectivity will require data as the source. And if we don't enable the access to that data, uh, I think uh, we will be in a weaker position. Uh, that also shouldn't exclude that we look at the rules of the GDPR again um, in, in terms of whether they are really kind of, you know, um, up uh, uh, for, for that innovation step that we want to take. This doesn't mean uh, that I would challenge the principles of the, of the GDPR that I fully stand behind, but rather the kind of the future proof and innovation friendly aspects, the governance and the coherence systems also with what we have done so far. So in sum, coming to the end, <laughs> Um, uh, so I, I think it's important to get input from global associations like yours for the months ahead, uh, to get constructive material that we can work with in all our uh, different DGs, uh, preparing for the political guidelines, preparing for the new commissioners, uh, for the changes that might come in. Um, uh, but for me, it's very clear uh, that economy will be much more at the center um, of the next commission uh, than uh, it, it could be in this commission, which was also a lot crisis management commission, um, and that we should be well equipped from the single market and the competitiveness agenda uh, to really do this together. On the international side, I think we need to be open, and I think it has started 
um, effectively already with the economic security agenda, with the issue of digital sovereignty. We can still be an important player with others, but I think we have to open up perspectives for taking a fresh look at trade policy, at kind of security aspects, at data policy, to really kind of meet the challenges of the future and to really be well equipped as European Union that wants to play a role in this tech race and it's in this systemic rivalry that we will continue to see in the years to come so that we look after our own interests while kind of, you know, joining up with those who can join up with us. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Renata. In just a minute, I'm going to invite uh, uh, MEP uh, Kumpala Natria and uh, Voss up to join us on stage. But I wanted to uh, just ask you a, a quick follow-up question before I do that. Um, and first of all, thank you for these uh, very candid, and I understand about the future mandate that they're your personal remarks, and we should emphasize that um, because we can't speak for the for the entire commission uh, on what's going to happen in the future. Um, but I appreciate your noting the importance of uh, engagement and input, and obviously, as you noted, our uh, our Vision 2030 uh, effort is focused on that global approach and the importance because ITI is an international organization uh, representing European tech companies as. Uh, elsewhere. So that important uh, global perspective is uh, one we'll continue to, uh, to bring. And as you noted, the election season is upon us here in Europe and elsewhere. And uh, you noted that Europe is not the only place holding uh, controversial and potentially uh, impactful elections. And we, we too will be paying attention um, to the complicated politics of the, uh, of the Eurovision uh, sound, song competition when that, uh, when that starts. I assume that's what you were referring to, the Eurovision. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's coming up soon. Um, and another election as well that we'll be paying attention to. But I did want to ask you, uh, just again, before we bring the MEPs on stage, you mentioned um, the importance of the next mandate reflecting the amount of work that happened in the current mandate. Unprecedented number of regulatory proceedings, uh, uh, precedents for the world, a lot of implementation to do. And you noted that uh, from the Commission's perspective, it's a lot of work uh, doing that implementation. Um, I wanted to ask, are you also hearing from the member states that they have a lot of work and need more resources and are concerned about the, the ability to address all of these issues uh, that are coming up? Is that part of the, uh, the, um, the consideration <coughs> on, on potential future action, the, the burden it places not only on the Commission and your team and your colleagues across Brussels, but also 27 other jurisdictions that have to deal with the enforcement and the implementation of all of these measures that are coming out? I think this has been this is a good question, and this has been already an issue in the in the, in the later stage uh, regulatory initiatives that we have brought forward. That in some areas, you know, member states will say, "Oh, wait a minute, you know, we are still kind of digesting what we have just adopted," and here you come with yet another, uh, you know, initiative. So, um, in the end, it's always, uh, you know, then then when we finalize the things together, I mean, we can put an initiative on the table. Um, the, the political feasibility depends on how the other actors, uh, the co-legislators, uh, intervene in this. Um, so when we manage in the end, it shows that we probably have kind of, you know, done the right thing and uh, addressed something that needed to be addressed. Um, but yes, I, I really, are, I'm seeing, I'm observing in the Commission a change in perception when it comes to enforcement. Um, because when you look at, in particular in the digital area, the rulemaking that we are seeing, we're doing a lot of regulations. We're doing a lot of regulations principle-based because they are future-oriented. Uh, they are in dynamic areas where you don't quite know what the developments will be in five years' time. So you need to be up to speed. So there's follow-up work. There's kind of um, it's 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 more a framing uh, of something 
on a journey that we will then have to kind of, you know, continue together. So it's really a totally different approach to that the work is not done when uh, the uh, regulation appears in the official journal, but actually that's when another chapter opens. And, you know, I'm seeing it at the moment very clearly in the Data Act, where really kind of, you know, my teams are really engaged in concrete outreach activity to really spread that news um, and, and really be partnering with um, uh, business associations, but also in the boards, because we normally create boards with member states to help them. And normally that's, that's what we have to do. And then it works. So it's really clubs, clubs that have to work together. It's never, you know, uh, uh, alone uh, uh, in, in the hands of the member states. It's never alone in the hands of, of the Commission. It's really kind of Team Europe working together. Then it becomes um, an effective enforcement. And as I said, effective enforcement also showcase also to the general public, ah, that's the effect when, when actually rules are not only adopted but effectively implemented. I think that's also a good narrative for business but also for citizens in Europe. So I feel there is really a shift in perception. When I, when I started in the Commission, enforcement work was seen as mm, that's kind of boring and not interesting. It's much more interesting to um, invent and to negotiate. But, you know, it's actually an important part of the work. And that's why you have in some DGs chief enforcement officers. And, you know, it's, I think it's daunting on all of us that this is an important part of the work. Thanks for that. Speaking of the important work uh, still to come, the uh, European Parliament has been very active on technology policy issues. And I want to invite to the stage um, two leaders in the uh, European Parliament uh, who have been very active on tech policy issues and can share their perspective with us on what's happened and what's to come. So uh, let me first invite a uh, member of the European Parliament, uh, Mia Petra Kompolonatri from Finland to the stage. Welcome. And uh, MEP Axel Voss of Germany to the stage as well. Um, Mia Petra serves on uh, the Trade and Industry uh, Committee. Um, Axel Voss serves on the Parliament's Committee on Legal Affairs. We are delighted to have you both here uh, with us, Mia Petra in particular. Great to see you again, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, have you here today. Um, we've been talking about the digital transformation um, and uh, the work that has been done during this mandate, the work that's probably going to come in the next mandate. Uh, I want to start with you and ask uh, what you think is most important uh, for the Parliament to focus on um, uh, in order to fully realize this dream of EU's digital transformation? Just to mention first the easy part that you need to reach everyone, the connectivity, it's not still there, the, the fast connection to the very everyone. So that is one. Then we read that the fiber is more uh, reaching tec technically, physically than the people having the access. So that is the first principle. I just come from another seminar on the twin transition and then how do you uh, use the digitalization for the cutting the emissions and planning your electricity use. It's with the electrical cars and air conditioning and, and heating up and all that. So you can't do it if you don't have the networks. And then also at this world, when we talk about the strategic uh, autonomy, but also strategic economy, whatever it means on the both sides of Atlantic and everywhere, uh, I think that it really emphasizes that we need to have some uh, trusted networks as well and some critical infrastructure is even more uh, important on these days of unsecurity, even on the traditional security side. 
But then on the, uh, the possibilities, and I appreciate Renate also took the possibilities up, so it's not regulating to kill innovations, and it's not regulate to kill competitiveness or regula uh, regulate to, to kill the competition, but may make the markets that can be more competitive and, uh, and then have the markets and not uh, maybe monopolistic structures or so. So that was the whole idea on the, the Data Act and, and really, really look forward to see also more. You know, and you were self-confident. I haven't seen that much. Everybody coming to ask that. I feel that I really did a lot of work also negotiating that that we shake the apple tree and take more apples to come. And where are now all the baskets that I want to innovate and I want to use that new uh, right that it was created to have the access on the equipment that you uh, own that uh, no equipment is producing data if you don't use it. And if you are the one using the data, then also having possibilities to, to build on that data. So now really should make people and, and innovators aware, uh, existing companies, but also new ones to interrupt and, and make disruptive uh, innovations. That is the whole idea. And also that uh, AI, that is the topic everywhere, everywhere uh, is also needing that data. So that's why I was happy that uh, at least in, um, one company is registered according to DGA, the uh, Interoperability Service um, uh, that was uh, in Finland last week. Because now it is possible and every country should have the registers. And, and so maybe that will fly, maybe it will not, something else. But I very much also see that Good ideas have been there. We have to make now it happen. Speaking of AI, because everyone is talking about it, as you mentioned, let me ask Axel Voss for his views. Now that the AI legislation is done and the implementation work begins in earnest this week, uh, what should we be paying attention to and what are you most keen to see the focus on as we move forward to implement the AI Act? Hmm. <laughs> Um, at first, uh, thank you for the invitation and also this uh, very good exchange regarding the future of uh, also digital um, legislative uh, ideas. And also Happy New Year to everyone. And it's a good start if I'm listening to the Commission that they are more future oriented now instead of thinking regulation is already a strategy. So it is not. So that's why we have to have in mind that we need more to come um, especially also focusing on some details sometimes. So um, on the AI Act, um, <clears throat> still um, I would say it's not totally clear that we have everywhere a majority for letting this go through. The council, I do not know what they are doing. In parliament it might be critical, we don't know yet, uh, but um, we have to wait a bit. But Again, here what we, of course, the AI Act is not a reason for going abroad, um, but it's also not a reason for settling in Europe. It's um, quite interesting to see there's a lot of bureaucracy, therefore we have to think about of um, how we can help also yeah, small and medium-sized uh, companies and so on. Um, it's a lot. It's not probably the same like the GDPR, but um, um, I, I see this somehow critical. But what I find more critical <coughs> is um, that we sh uh, what we should do is also to accompany these with 
some, let's say, programs or to try to get rid of overlappings with other regulations and so on, just helping instruments around that this is a kind of a more easy way forward. Um, what we haven't achieved in a way I would like to see it is the whole interpretation. What we have not done um, in a very good way was the GDPR in interpreting on a national level all these um, provisions and this leads to totally um, yeah, messy situation. And uh, we are a bit better now, but not as far as I'm seeing it, it, it could have been better then. And here, what I would like to see at the end in the second or third or whatever step is that we might come to a, let's say, digital agency of the European Union where we can combine all these Digital Services Act, Digital Market Act, uh, data protection, AI, where we have a kind of an um, yeah, approach where this is balanced. So we are creating interpretations just focusing on data protection and the other one is just focusing on competition, but both has to come together. Um, it's also a way forward if we as a legislator and our self-understanding, sh we should be more flexible in reacting. Um, we, we are too ponderous and so since four years, since this mandate, I'm running again and again against the same walls in the commission, not Renate, but um, in, in, in <laughs> now it's, we have to modernize the, GDP, the GDPR. It, what, what we, we have these old principles on this way. We have um, not talk, uh, talked about AI and this GDPR and so on. So this has to be modernized and here we need to have a better flexible legislator that we are um, seeing a problem, taking these on board and trying to come to a solution in my dreams in three months have a <laughs> legitimate democratic uh, solution. This would be wonderful. And um, the AI Act itself, it, um, <sighs> so far I hear a lot of criticism, um, I have to admit, um, because it's so uh, yeah, not very easy going with these, uh, especially understanding and so on. And then if we are once starting this differently, interpreting all the provisions, then this is becoming very messy. Um, so still, I hope that we have achieved with the sandboxes, with the real world testing, a kind of a tool where we can connect GDPR to um, AI innovation somehow because you need a lot of personal data to train your algorithms if this should become non-discriminatory, non-biased and uh, gender balanced and so on. So you need a lot of personal data and if we are not allowing these then nobody will be interested in, in uh, working here in, in the EU. So that's why this is, has also come in addition to the AI Act that we are now coming to this point and saying, yes, we are providing you a lot of data, especially also for research. We should do here more and more to get access 
that we might come up also with new business models and new ideas and so on. And this is not only in other continents um, that is taking place. So it's a real challenge for us. Even I, I'm convinced so far, but I hope there are other ideas that we have to join forces in Europe. Otherwise, I do not see how we can compete any longer because we are already lagging behind extremely. And here we, we have to come to ideas what might be out of the normal way of thinking, but here to join forces, probably to have European um, models or European um, solutions in a way and not then thinking about, oh, what is about taxation and so on. I know all these problems in the member states, but uh, we, we have to come forward here. And uh, this is what I would consider might be paved the way for better competitor to the rest of the world than what we are now. So again, the AI Act for itself, I would say it's, uh, you, you can see this from both sides. Um, it's, it's not uh, the solution to um, that you are all of a sudden innovating a lot of things um, because it's, it's getting too complicated. I, I would more appreciate <coughs> and, and the simplified access to it, but so far, of course, we have to make compromises everywhere between the constitutions, between the political parties, and then it's getting complicated. Everyone is adding something. Um, sometimes a different approach also might be quite more helpful in seeing what we would like to achieve with AI and then coming to sectoral approaches. I think Iban has uh, had this idea also in his ethical report in the Uri Committee at that time, long years ago. But, um, but I'm not sure if this is not a better approach at the end to be more flexible also to all of this. Very interesting analysis and uh, a very interesting call to action for future uh, activity. I want to uh, give Renata an opportunity to uh, respond to the uh, call for the creation of a new digital agency uh, to compete with DG Connect. Um, no, just, uh, just kidding, unless you want to respond to that. But what I actually want to ask you, and then I want to come back to uh, Mia Petra on uh, your view for the roadmap for data governance uh, legislation uh, under the next mandate and, and, uh, and going forward. But Renata, your thoughts on, um, perhaps I'll, I'll broaden the question out, uh, uh, about how perhaps the commission should approach data regulation maybe a little differently, either on process or procedure. We had a great question in, uh, that came in from the audience about uh, the need for um, technical uh, interaction with industry to inform the process and what that will look like going forward. But just kind of at a high level, what you think maybe the approach to these kind of issues uh, might be a little different uh, in, in the commission. And you can certainly comment on the idea of a new DG for, uh, for, for data um, that uh, MEP Voss suggested. Um, I, I think, it, as I said, I think it's important to kind of look at how we ensure there is access for data in the EU in the next mandate, because we will need it for AI, we will need it for the future connectivity, we will need it if we want to move to the virtual worlds, we will need it if we kind of want to kind of be part of that competitive edge in the future. You know, Axel and I were both involved quite intensely in the GDPR. 
when we um, designed the GDPR more than a decade ago, there was a double promise. There was a promise, of course, to substantiate the individual right, the fundamental right of privacy, but there was also a promise to kind of have a future-oriented innovation, uh, in, in, uh, supporting innovation approach. And indeed, we kind of negotiated um, it a long time ago, uh, and we are kind of in, uh, you know, in a, in a fast technologically um, uh, developing uh, situation. Uh, and some of the things we would probably define slightly differently today, uh, pseudonymization, anonymization, compared to what we did then. So there will be a report on the GDPR, that's inevitable <laughs> this year, because that's in the law, um, that will kind of have to look at you know, how we're doing. Uh, I, this is not my file at the moment, so, so I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really speaking on, on, on my personal capacity here. But you know, there are of course discussions about is the governance the right kind of approach? There are issues about um, you know, is the cooperation of the data protection authorities uh, efficient enough? Especially if you look at the models that we have developed since then with the DSA, the, D, the DMA or also the Data Act. There is an issue about convergence with the other places. It's a delicate question whether you know, we should open a GDPR. I see that. And, and certainly there will be many people who say, oh, wait a minute, because you know, this has been such an important success story of the EU. Because GDPR has been exported worldwide. It has inspired so many countries in the world who have also considered modernizing their privacy legislation um, in, in this kind of you know, digital transition that we are experiencing. And I fully stand behind the key principles of the GDPR. I fully stand behind the inspiration that we have been given for others. I don't want to kind of challenge that, but it's more on the edges around it that I think we could kind of you know, um, maybe you know, clarify things a little further. And I think this will be necessary because I think Axel has a point when he says that when you look at how even though GDPR is also regulation, uh, but with the structure that we have found, also the governance structure, it is still applied in a slightly different way compared, you know, in different member states. Um, and, and I think that's, I think, something that we should at least discuss and address. Um, so, because otherwise we will not meet this important challenge that we need, need to facilitate data. Data for research, for instance, that's not impossible under the GDPR. That's actually possible under G GDPR. So I think it's really about looking at the promise um, that, that the GDPR already had, but it has been formulated in a much um, clearer way in the following acts, because we are somewhere else in the data economy compared to more than a de decade ago. And I think that would be a worthwhile kind of discussing. And I think it would also kind of, you know, echo a lot of the debates that we are having with partners when looking, looking at adequacy decisions. It doesn't mean that you're kind of, you know, uh, losing the right to privacy. It will always be important. The trust in it will always be important. But, but nevertheless, I think if we really want to go in these issues such as personalized medicine um, with the support of AI, I think it's inevitable that we find a way you know, to, to deal with data. A digital agency, not the right moment. Very good. Well, we did come back to that after all. <laughs> not the right moment. That's not a no.
It's just a timing. Um, <laughs> it's a step towards the right goal. <laughs> right. Um, Mia Petra, I want to come back to you on this question of data governance and, and get your thoughts on uh, data governance policies going forward. As both uh, Axel and, and Renata mentioned, um, data is going to be crucial to the success of AI, to the ability of European companies to innovate, um, to deploy technologies that are most beneficial to address medical outcomes, financial services access, education, agricultural uh, development, uh, and so much more. These data policies have never been more important. And, and as Renata mentioned, if these data policies do not allow innovators to get access to the information they need, um, European companies will not be able to succeed. So your thoughts, uh, Mia Petra, on uh, data governance policies going forward? I, I'm still uh, on the different side, and Axel, <laughs> this is not the first panel. I don't know if it's the last one, because he had a good try, the democratic nice way, on the last review of the GDPR in the parliament, and parliament it voted no, we will not open it. So that was nice democratic open uh, way to handle the GDPR. And I see the vice versa, that I see the new call, that USA markets also calling after the privacy, even the Chinese having something on the title of the privacy. I don't know if it's uh, very much uh, similar to ours. So this is also that why there are also sometimes uh, unwillingness to trust and do is that you don't trust how your data is used. So also the GDPR is for the private and the Data Act was very much on the industrial data. So of course we are human beings and we have uh, mobile phones full of applications. This is the first indent you have on the data. But also the Europe wants to do good industrial policy, which is also very, very important on ge these geopolitical times that we concentrate on our industrial policy to live and up uh, and, and innovate more. And then we get the consumer goods. So I, uh, that's also maybe coming from the ITRE committee that I want to see the industrial data and then uh, the uh, equipment data to be used and, and create more innovation. But I also want to emphasize that it has been the longer road than my 10 years here that open access to data public data. It's very open. It was the last piece of legislation in Finland was something on the accountancy that you had to keep your bookkeeping in country physically. And that was removed already more than five years ago. So you don't have the single uh, requirement for data kind of localization or not to open it. And so the public side did our part. And then now let's see that how much data is in the silo. Commission gave us the, the figure 80% in, in somewhat. So why to keep it in the silos and not to uh, give it out? So that's where the whole idea for the data governance comes. And then how to create it that uh, you have a new right to have access to data is that at least the equipment created data can be then used more. So I think it is very much... Uh, I, I felt sometimes that uh, a little bit uh, up in the air, like 20 centimeters and then back in the earth that what are we doing because uh, we don't have those models yet, but they will come. And then if not, then we don't know how and who and where is using the data. For the AI also, we need data. We, I was in, in charge of the negotiating of the sandboxes part in the uh, ITRE committee and then uh, quite much involved with the, the, the people uh, around the table for those long hours, but not on the table, but I'm much more positive. I'm 
99% sure it will pass in the parliament. Commission, it depends, uh, the council side depends much on the Germany and France, but let's see. Uh, Cedric O will be on the same panel next week, so I will <laughs> look him in the eye. And is it really difficult or is it really impossible to have the language model inside? Uh, that is for the call I had from the SME side that if SMEs have to report that they, uh, they use the AI systems, high-risk AI systems, and they use generative AI behind all of their solutions, and they only bear the burden of reporting and, and make it trustworthy. That was the main reason I was calling that the generative AI systems also need to have some transparency so that then the next uh, level of the enterprises can do their reporting. So this is the whole logic to me and, and then now when it's the consolidated text has been available at least 24 hours or how long, so maybe some of you have checked that already. So, uh, and, and also on the health data spaces, that was also agreed, because it is important and it is mixing the private data. So it's not that the not to use the private data, but how to use the private data, so, so that you cannot trace back. I don't want it to be public somewhere or uh, used for some certain companies, my diseases, but I have always championed for the uh, secondary uses of data that was been done in Finland. Maybe too complicated where you can renew that a bit, but at least now imagine we could have the European data space for health innovations. It's quite remarkable and I hope it will show also some AI-driven solutions then. I'm not a doctor, only engineer, so I'm a strong believer of the personal medication and so uh, that can be done. But it is not that it will be uh, without my uh, knowledge and consciousness and being the, the driver in the seat when it's planned on to me. Uh, and then a similar way that... Uh, General remark is that it is not banning, but it is saying how to use. AI Act is not saying not to innovate, but it's saying how to innovate. And even the executive order by Biden is having the same logic that the high-risk applications need to report to the government how they are trained. Very important insight. All right, we've come to the end of our panel, but I want to ask a rapid-fire question of all three of you. Uh, MEP Voss, I'll start with you and uh, ask the question, if you could have the EU focus on only one tech policy issue, one policy issue in the next 12 months, what's the most important priority uh, for the EU to focus on in the next 12 months if you could only have one? If I can only have one. You can this, only have one. Yeah, if this would be AI. Very good. Mia Petra, what's your one priority that you'd pick for the EU to focus on? EU institutions, I'll say. Hey, I mentioned so that will be on the agenda, so I don't need to take that one. I will take the industry, and one particle that I'm worried at the moment is uh, uh, patent systems and standard essential patents, where Europe is trying to destroy its own uh, licensing systems and uh, <laughs> existing uh, court cases, and I don't know what has happened. I'm very worried because I uh, look all the time the world through the uh, more unsecure neighbor Russia. It's <laughs> personally for me, neighboring from Finland, but then it's neighboring for NATO, it's neighboring for uh, whole Europe. We need to have a stronger uh, say on our future of our industries, and it combines the possibility for the sovereign economic uh, as well. So why to waste something as critical infrastructure on mobile technology, for example? All right, so we have AI, critical infrastructure. Renata, you get to pick third. Future 
oriented and resilient connectivity. Fantastic. Particularly important in Europe as we uh, experience weather across the continent that uh, interrupts a lot of uh, activities and as Mia Petra mentioned in open remarks, um, broadband connectivity is the most important thing to take advantage of all of these things. So I like all three of those. And I will ask our audience uh, online and in the room to join me in thanking our first terrific panel. Thank you all very much. Thank you to Axel, Mia Petra, and to Renata. And uh, I will quickly uh, pivot to introducing our second panel uh, and invite them to join us on stage so that we can continue our important discussion on these vital tech policy issues. Uh, let me introduce uh, first uh, MEP uh, Anna-Michel Asimakopoulou from Greece, who is the vice chair of the Trade Committee and Econ Committee member. Anna-Michel, welcome. Let me also introduce, uh, please, uh, let me introduce uh, MEP Iban Garcia del Blanco of Spain, who is a member of the Parliament's Committee on Legal Affairs. Welcome. And then we're pleased to have uh, Luciana Tomozai-Schwand from the European Investment Bank's uh, Head of Global Affairs and Sectoral Policy Division. Luciana, welcome. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Hendrik uh, Bourgeois is Intel Corporation's Vice President of European Government Affairs. Hendrik, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, Anna Michelle, I'm going to start with you. We've heard a lot of great dialogue and discussion about what's happened in this mandate, which has been quite a bit, what might happen in the next mandate. Um, you have been very focused on one of the issues that's uh, not hypothetical. It's actually on the agenda this week, and that is security, secure supply chains, um, a discussion of the importance of the use of export controls and other uh, tools that the EU has available to ensure the security of EU citizens. We know this week is uh, a week where tomorrow mm -hmm. we're going to have an important discussion on these issues. You've been a leader uh, in the parliament in discussing these issues. These are very complicated balancing questions about the need to promote innovation, uh, the need to promote uh, uh, security, uh, and where those two come together. Can I ask for your thoughts on how we should be thinking about these issues, what you're hoping to hear tomorrow, although we have some leaked documents already, but what you're hoping to hear officially and formally tomorrow, and what you think uh, the parliament and other EU institutions should be doing on these supply chain issues. Sure, sure. So first of all, Jason, thank you very much for, for one more uh, invitation. Um, we've already had an excellent panel discussion. I'm pleased to join, and congratulations also on your, uh, your 2030 you. vision document. I, I just have to say, just to get it out of the way, I, I was really, um, let's say, impressed by the part where you emphasize skills. Because I think, you know, we can talk about competitiveness, we can talk about digital, but ultimately, I think one of Europe's competitive advantages are its people. And by people, I mean not just people, you know, people who are here in general. So skills is a big issue for me. So I'm glad that you touched upon that. So let me come to the, to the question at hand. Um, First of all, let me just say that I'm really pleased that competitiveness is being discussed uh, and that it's high up on the agenda. This, this is definitely a topic that was high up for the European People's Party, which is my political group, but I'm glad that it is. And I, I think that the reason this has happened is threefold, and I think that there's three, let's say, strategic policy directions we need to follow. So the first thing is COVID. 
when COVID hit us, I mean, competitiveness always used to be a, a, a discussion that said, okay, we want competitive industry, you know, because we want our industry to make money. And okay, come on, let's be a little bit less competitive, but protect people and keep our values. It was that kind of pull. All of a sudden, COVID made it an existential issue. I mean, it, it, made, it made competitiveness a matter of survival because we were now talking about masks and medicines. And all of a sudden, we got hit with some serious decisions. And I come to your questions, which is a, a balancing act between openness and security and critical raw materials. Yes? When I came to this mandate, I had no idea what critical raw materials really were. I mean, I, d I didn't understand how important they were. And then, number two, Green Deal, all of a sudden, I realized if we're going to make this transition, this twin transition, we need these critical raw materials. Where are they? Well, we don't have enough. <laughs> In fact, uh, we're going to need 18 times more lithium by 2030 and five times more cobalt. But almost our entire supply of critical raw materials comes from China. That's the truth. So I come to the third thing, which is, you know, people realize that all over the world now. So then you have the United States, they introduce the IRA, and they're throwing a ton of money at whatever you want to call this now, Green Deal, digital transition. The world is changing, and Europe all of a sudden is lagging behind. So what's the policy direction? Policy direction is first, competitiveness has to come up on the agenda. <laughs> Let's start there. So this is already, we're already, so that's got to be on the mandate, right? So competitiveness, top of the agenda. How do you deal with all these issues you have with this transition with a Green Deal and what's happening to industry? Well, that's related to what's going on with the IRA. It's about money. <laughs> so what do you want to do if you want to help industry become more competitive? Well, there's two things you can, two big, big things you can do. You can cut their costs. So that's one big ask. And there's a war going on. These are very much, you know, electricity intensive industry. And the second is you give them money. I'm glad we have the EIB on the panel because, because what I'm talking about is some sort of market intervention. And I'm not the ideologically comfortable with market intervention. But at the same time, it's so obvious that we need it. And the EIB, I think, and I'm looking forward to hearing their, uh, the uh, presentation today, I think is a very good way to do that. So I'm going to close with, with saying the following. Um, we have to deal with the world the way it is and not the world the way we would like it to be. And that means that we have discovered that we have some very dangerous dependencies in this day and age and which are becoming even more dangerous if you look at the geopolitical context that we're in and the race that's on. So for me, we need to prioritize competitiveness of our industry. We need to ensure that we have access to the critical raw materials for these transitions. And we need to make sure that we are using every bit of source of finance that we have and even talk in the next mandate about a lot more money that's going to be needed for all these things. Thanks. Uh, Iban, uh, I want to ask you about this uh, need for European innovation, particularly around emerging technologies. Uh, we hear a lot about metaverse, um, including the industrial metaverse. Uh, 
Siemens, uh, a terrific European headquartered company and an ITI member company, is very focused on the industrial metaverse. Uh, I know you've been thinking a lot about what's necessary policy-wise uh, to promote this kind of innovation, particularly around emerging technologies. What are your thoughts on what uh, the EU institutions need to prioritize in order to help European companies succeed on the global market stage? Uh, thank you, thank you so much for the invitation, first of all, uh, and good afternoon to, to everybody. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard to, to, to I, I don't have uh, for sure the, the right answer to, to this question because uh, I, I, I would be paid uh, so much money for that, uh, for sure. But uh, yeah, I think that, I think first of all, we, we have to, to make a, a kind of, um, of, uh, of, 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 of reflection about what, what we did uh, these five years. And it, it is important in order to, to, get, to, to make the, 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 the next step forward. No? Uh, and yeah, we tried uh, uh, these five years to, to find the, the right balance at the end, no? the, between, of, of course, this uh, mother of their life that is competitiveness uh, uh, from, from Europe, uh, but at the same time, trying to uh, pave the way for the future for new next generations, uh, in order to 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 be uh, to be protected, in order to to gain the the future, and for that, uh, it was important to combine these two important shifts that were the the digital transition, and the and the uh, green transition too, that are as as we were uh, talking uh, today, are, are twins and uh, indispensable one one to to each other. And in this way, that I think that we have to, 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 to deliver in a proper way all this uh, construction, all this uh, build, uh, building that we uh, constructed uh, these five years in um, not, not, not always uh, very uh, easygoing uh, atmosphere because as, as we were talking uh, about, uh, there were uh, this pandemic crisis, there were uh, this uh, war uh, with the Russian, uh, Russian aggression in, in Ukraine. Every important topics that at the end of the day were so, uh, uh, so hamp hampering no, for, for our action and sometimes uh, made us uh, to focus our attention and our priori priori priorities on, on that topics. No? But at the same time, I think that we took advantage and that in, in this moment to uh, make uh, leaps forward in the correct way. And I think that now uh, we count with uh, with uh, an important uh, scaffolding of 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 of, of rules, uh, scaffolding of rules that are uh, based in a common uh, a common understanding and a, a common uh, agreement and and, and reach, uh, reach that uh, that we manage uh, between uh, many uh, political uh, actors from, uh, of course, institutions, different institutions to all political parties inside the European Parliament. And I think that we are in the proper, in the proper moment to, uh, as I said, uh, to, to, to make the, the next step. That is, make sure that uh, regulations, as Data Act, we were uh, speaking about uh, Data Act is, is not used properly till this moment now. Uh, or artificial intelligence act, or uh, uh, all these, uh, all the rest of of, of the, the 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 regulations on, on the digital market are uh, used for the best to 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 to, to be delivered in the, in the correct way. And in this way, uh, in this regard, uh, I'm quite agree about that. Uh, we have to to think about uh, new forms of, of governance. Uh, I don't know if just from the from the perspective of. of the institutions to deliver the, the, the regulation. But I think that 
we have to, 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 to think about uh, uh, common spaces, common, <coughs> common grounds uh, shared by the private sector and the technological sector and institutional sector too. That, uh, I think that we have to think in, 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 other, in other way that we thought in, in the past, you know, about the governance and about the deliver, <coughs> delivering of, of, of regulation in, in, in that regard. Um, speaking about uh, things like metaverse or artificial intelligence, I think that an important achievement that we, we reached uh, too was to be in advance of some of the challenges that we are going to face in the future. This is the example of, of the, of the uh, piece that we approved in the European Parliament uh, uh, last week about uh, uh, metaverse and, and this web, uh, web uh, 4.0 and so on. And not necessary, uh, the future is going to be gained by, by regulation, but at, the, at least to be aware of, of the kind of challenges that we have to we have ahead and, and, and we have to, uh, to uh, deal with uh, all together. And uh, until uh, or till now, I, I would like to, to, have a, a, to, to make a, a final remark about one of the, of the issues that were uh, uh, surrounding us uh, all the conversation about uh, if uh, our regulation is going to hamper our competitiveness or so on. I'm quite reluctant to, to think in this way uh, because I think that there's a fact that is undeniable that uh, it's not a new, but we know that we Europeans are lagging behind from decades, from decades. It's not a matter of, of, of right now. It's not a, a, a matter of, of this day that we have uh, this uh, artificial intelligence, for instance, uh, regulation approved. No, we didn't have any kind of regulation in the past, and, and the fact was that we were lagging behind. I think that, on the contrary, uh, these uh, pieces of regulation is, are an opportunity for Europeans <coughs> in the way to conform or perform a kind of uh, world scaffolding that are quite similar to our values uh, to be protected, and at the same time to give legal certainty to all the actors that they are going to uh, perform in the, in the European market. That is an important part, because if we take a, take a look to US uh, current situation, for instance, we'll see uh, the, uh, dozens of shoes, of shoes in the courts, because in that way, uh, the regulation and the rules in US are not quite certain in this moment. I think that this is a, a big difference that we have to, to take advantage of. Uh, and I think that, that that is important too. Every single panelist has mentioned the importance of investment uh, and financial upgrades to uh, the competitiveness of European companies. Uh, well, I should note, Hendrik hasn't spoken yet, but I predict that he will make <laughs> a note about the tens of billions of dollars that Intel is investing around the world and how expensive it is to be an innovation leader. So uh, I don't know if you brought your checkbook with you um, and can uh, make some commitments here, but in all seriousness, uh, the importance of investment to uh, the innovation economy uh, has never been more clear. Uh, and as Anna Michelle particularly noted, um, that investment is going to determine the success or failure of the economy uh, and innovation in Europe. So can you share the EIB's perspective on uh, what the landscape looks like for making those investments in Europe? Of course, um, first of all, thank you very much, Jason, for inviting me here today. It's really a pleasure to, to be in this excellent panel, and I was very happy to, to hear to the colleagues from the previous panel. Um, 
investing in innovation and in digitization is not only a must for ensuring critical developments such as the energy transition, um, but it became also a necessity, specifically for what uh, was mentioned before, in particular by, by Anne-Michel, for, for ensuring and actually for um, fostering competitiveness of our, uh, of our uh, economy, of our industry. Uh, yes, Europe uh, was doing uh, a lot, but a lot doesn't mean uh, has been doing enough. And this is because uh, we all know um, public coffers are not and will never be deep enough and wide enough to support all the necessary investments that we need to, um, to, to ensure this transition to, to net zero. And this is why we need to mobilize the private sector. And um, you are asking about the conditions for the private sector. But basically, um, if you ask us, the private sector will need three things. They will need certainty, they will need clarity, and they will need efficiency. By, by certainty, I mean that there should be no doubt uh, in terms of our commitment. We, there is a lot of talk about uh, scaling down policies, reversing. Well, all this is not helping uh, investors uh, putting the money if, if they know that there is no, not a stable um, environment um, for, for them to do so. By, by clarity, I mean there should be one uh, single set of rules for everybody. That would definitely help investors. Um, and, and also by, which brings me of course to, to efficiency, and oh, it was mentioned several times before, uh, the banking union is not finalized, the capital markets union is still working progress like Christine Lagarde was uh, saying the other day in, in Davos. Um, so we need to, um, to um, understand that because of that, uh, a lot of the companies, they go to the United States and, and find more uh, sources of financing there. Um, because uh, the, also the, the venture capital markets and, and uh, capital uh, in general is more uh, abundant uh, over there than, uh, than, than here. Um, this is why um, I could mention one thing that we launched last year together with the five governments, um, and this is a, it's called European Tech Champions Initiative. It's basically a fund of funds that invests in later stage growth uh, companies uh, to help them stay here in Europe. And these are the, the green innovators and the tech innovators that we need, again, for the transition to, uh, to net zero. Um, I, could, I could mention, of course, uh, also other initiatives, but I come back to the point of, of startups. Um, they are very important because most of the technologies that are needed for this uh, getting to, to where we want to, do, to get to the net zero, most of these technologies do not exist yet. So we need to invent them. And that's why innovation is key. I mean, yes, for energy efficiency and um, renewable energies, we do have affordable alternatives to fossil fuels that we can deploy. But for other uh, sectors, take aviation, take uh, heavy industries, like it was mentioned before, we need to, to uh, invest in these uh, uh, high-risk technologies, which we do very well at, at the AB, to make them affordable and make them scalable uh, in, uh, for, for the future. Um, and that's why also the, the reason why uh, in response to the commission call and the demand in the, in the market, we launched uh, um, uh, and we committed to invest additional 45 billion euros over the next five years uh, as a response to the Repower EU package, again for the, for the, green, uh, for the green industry. Um, so we are in a high interest rate environment uh, and there our funding plays a big role. But money is also not everything, as I was mentioning before. And especially for the high-risk companies, the ones that are inventing new technologies, which are very risky, there the way we operate is actually de-risking those projects 
so allowing therefore the private sector to, to come in. Um, and uh, this is what we have been doing 20 years ago with the offshore wind farms and this is what we are uh, doing again uh, again today. And I want to jump to a point that uh, Anne-Michelle said about the critical raw materials and manufacturing or state-of-the-art manufacturing, which are also extremely important, again, to take us where we want to get. Um, we are also doing much more uh, on, of, on that, on, uh, on those fronts. And the reasons are, are uh, twofold, basically. First of all, yes, we are in a global uh, subsidies race, unfortunately. Uh, yes, climate mitigation should be a global uh, good, but uh, we are in a competition, unfortunately. So what private sector needs and what also EIB is doing is to support our European companies to compete on the global stage. This is very, for us, it's very, very important. Uh, we are also um, providing EU-level um, financing, which creates an EU-level playing field. Because if you remember in the pandemic, different member states have, uh, have had different uh, possibilities to support their companies. And also back then, we, we created a pan-European instrument to give the same chances to companies in different member states, uh, again, to survive. And now it's, uh, it's more about competing on the, on the global stage. And the second reason why we are doing this is because investing in these companies create jobs. And we need more jobs here in Europe. Um, we are in an electoral year, very important elections coming up. We see a lot of pushback already uh, for in certain countries for the green policies. Uh, if we don't uh, talk about the green transition, the uh, in terms of also just transition, we will and we don't take people along. We will not uh, be able to to get there. So basically, what we are doing, and what we we see that it's um, is needed from the market is to support with a, all our um, you know array of instruments and resources to uh, to help getting uh, getting us there. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for that important uh, reminder uh, that these investment decisions are going to really impact the success of these policy efforts as well. And speaking of the connection between investment decisions and policy impacts, uh, Hendrik, you're here to share with us the perspective of the tech industry uh, from Intel. Uh, I think Intel's uh, current investments and announcements in Europe uh, about investments to come uh, have been more significant uh, than any other semiconductor company in the world uh, have announced. Uh, and it's a great reminder that uh, we are a global industry uh, and investments in Europe will happen by European companies and uh, U.S. companies and Asian companies, and we need to be mindful of that. Uh, this uh, Vision 2020, 2030 document that we released uh, notes that there are over 400,000 Europeans who are employed by uh, ITI members that are not headquartered in Europe, uh, and Intel is obviously one of them that employs a lot of people here, has made a lot of great announcements, is doing a lot of great innovation. Help us tie together um, the connection between these somewhat abstract policy discussions and the concrete business decisions about where to invest and how to invest that companies like Intel are making and have made, uh, and how uh, European policymakers can uh, really uh, align the decisions that they make with the successful outcomes that they're looking for. With pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, look, I think, first of all, the point I would like to make is that it is extremely important for policymakers and legislators to focus their attention um, and to allocate their scarce time, resources, or political capital on getting digital policies right. And the reason is that uh, digital products, digital services, digital innovation not only creates direct positive economic output for the European economy, 
but digital technology is increasingly embedded and integrated in other parts of the European economy, whether it's the pharmaceutical sector, the agricultural sector, we talked about it, aviation sector, you name it. And digital technologies basically increase the competitiveness of those sectors as well, and the resiliency of those sectors, and the sustainability of those sectors. And so if you do well in digital policy areas, as a banker or as a policymaker, you have a multiplying positive effect overall. And so that's why I think this conference is very important. That's why I think you know, organizations like the Information Technology Industry Council do great work, because they focus the attention on these spillover benefits. That's the first point I wanted to make. Second point, the question that I'm asking myself, and we've heard it before, you know, how is Europe doing, how is the European Union doing from a competitiveness perspective in the digital sector? And I think we're lagging behind. I mean, I don't have hard numbers, but uh, I took the digital, digital decade interim report as a proxy. The EU share of global ITC market in revenues over the last 10 years has reduced from 23% to 11%, half, 10 years, whilst the US has grown from 26% to 36%, 10% more. 80% of digital products, digital services, digital innovation in Europe come from abroad, 80%. Investments, in Europe, public and private investments have systematically been lower than in China or in the United States. For instance, 2014-2020, the United States has invested 590 billion US dollars in connectivity infrastructure. Europe, about half. And by the way, these are my numbers. These are numbers of the European Commission. It's, we all know that, for instance, European industry has less access to quality 5G than their US or Chinese competitors. And so that means that from a productivity perspective, we will score lower in Europe. And then when you look at the uptake of AI, when you look at the uptake of, of big data uh, by European businesses, we're very far away from the 75% targets that the digital de decade uh, uh, strategy sets for us. And so you know, I think we're lagging behind. I think these are worrying numbers. And I think it's important for stakeholders to agree on a diagnosis. Because if you agree on a diagnosis, then you can get together and trying to develop solutions to addressing the problem. Um, and I think, you know, I was, you know, very happily surprised to see a horizontal uh, single market strategy uh, issued by a number of member states last week ago, I think under, under the leadership of Finland. Um, and I was reading the document, and lo and behold, I was surprised to see that some of the recommendations that were made in this horizontal strategy document are also included in ITI's Vision 2030 paper. And so I think there is a number of things that we could be working on, and I will just name a few in the interest of time. Uh, first point, I think it's important to recognize that there is cost to the administrative burden of regulation. We've seen a massive amount of regulation in the digital space in the last four or five years. Um, I think it's time to take stock of where things are. I think it's time to uh, work on how interoperable these regulations are and to avoid inconsistencies. I think that's very important. Uh, it's time to implement. I don't think it's time to come up with new initiatives. Secondly, 
and this is also uh, a happy coincidence. I think it's, you know, for future regulation, I think legislators and policymakers should make competitiveness checks. In other words, before a legislation is adopted, but also, we heard it, you know, European legislation is, is framing legislation, it's principle-based legislation. So it's not enough to do a competitiveness check on the legislative proposal, because as we all know, or many of you know, you know, a lot of a lot of the regulation is then implemented through delegated acts and comitology, what have you not. And so I think it's important to conduct competitiveness checks also in the implementation of the regulation. What does that mean? It means simply to make sure, for instance, how does a new piece of legislation promote the achievement of the targets of the digital decade? Or how does that impact the competitiveness of businesses operating in Europe? Uh, and then the last point that was also included, I think, in, um, in, in that single market strategy was the point about, uh, and Anne Michel talked about it, about, about skills and the need, the, the absolute need to promote labor mobility in the European Union. And that's very difficult politically because it's a toxic, <laughs> it's a toxic uh, subject matter. Uh, for politicians to, to you know, increase immigration, even skilled labor immigration. But it's incredibly important for the European competitiveness, also in the digital space. Why? Because we have an aging population, uh, because labor markets in Europe are static. Uh, you know, in the United States and Asian markets, labor markets are much more dynamic, and because we have a skills gap. And so everything and anything that policymakers can do to facilitate the movement of skilled laborers in the European Union or even within member states of the European Union will definitely increase uh, investments, will definitely increase uh, the competitiveness of the European Union. And that's a very important problem, for instance, that Intel is facing in terms of you know, ensuring that the investments that we're making in new fabs, new manufacturing sites, we spend, and Taxpayers also spend a lot of money in attracting those investments that these sites can operate and that we can find the right talent to make them competitive and economically sound. Thank you. And I'm glad uh, you know, Petra was still here to uh, hear the call out to Finland uh, for leadership on these uh, policy issues. Uh, Anna Michelle, you, you started us down this uh, thread, I think an important reminder that uh, it's great to talk about digital policy, but uh, physical uh, uh, tech policy is also incredibly important. You talked about uh, resiliency, the CRM Act, and uh, critical materials. Um, uh, Hendrik uh, reminded us of uh, the European Chips Act and uh, investment uh, in uh, semiconductor manufacturing. You also talked about the importance of upskilling and uh, investing in uh, manufacturing capability and, and skills uh, here in Europe. Let me ask you to... Um, Help us um, tie together the, the 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 digital, the virtual, and the and the physical, and why uh, these kind of policy matters—the CRM Act, the Chips Act, other investments uh, in uh, physical resiliency and physical infrastructure—are uh, important in order to ensure the success on the digital policy side of the AI Act, the, the DSA, the DMA, all those things that we talk about on the on the on the digital side. Why is the physical stuff? Uh, important and what do you want to see uh, prioritized uh, going forward? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a quick example. I mean, um, one of these one of these critical raw materials that's necessary, I think, it's for semiconductors is, is gallium. Now, little did I know this, but gallium is a byproduct of bauxite when it when it's 
you're making aluminium. This is something that we didn't really do in Europe because it wasn't a value for money business proposition. So we got the stuff from China like everything else. Um, now in Greece, we, you know, we make enough aluminium and we have enough bauxite that if we did this, we could have actually enough gallium not just to cover Europe's needs, but to actually export some. Now that under different circumstances might not be a good idea to finance as a project because you know, you'd finance it somewhere else. But now we have different criteria because we need the physical stuff. We need the gallium. We need the lithium. And where is that stuff? Well, some of it's in Europe. That involves mining it, which is a really difficult, you know, sometimes difficult thing to get across and long-haul investments. But the rest is you can get through trade. So if you find the right partners, that, of course, means you actually do need to get trade deals over the line, like Australia, like Chile, if you only do a trade deal with New Zealand, then that's you know, pretty, you're limiting yourself with respect to partners. And on the, on the digital and the CHIPS Act, I think that you know, the, the, the example of what Europe has done, where we've, you know, the, the Netherlands has said, we're only going to give, I'm just going to say this simply because I'm no expert on this, we'll, we'll only give you the older stuff. We're not going to give you the newest, our newest technology. So you take it from us and so that we remain competitive. That shows that you can achieve this balance you're looking for, Jason, which is a balance between being safe and competitive and being open and trading with people and not closing down and becoming totally protectionist. And I'm, I'm sure that the, the commission is reflecting this balance in bringing these new tools that would be, let's say, protection tools. But protection is, a new, is the new safe. Ivan, we have just a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to circle back to the notion that you introduced us to of the importance of European digital leadership on the, on the world stage uh, and ask you um, uh, how kind of leaning into innovation policy along the lines that you discussed uh, will benefit Europe's global leadership. Yeah, I think that the, 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 the matter is that uh, it's not just, just about the regulation that is quite important in, in order, as I, as I said, in order to, to, to give certainty to all of the actors that are performing with, uh, with, with us in, in Europe and for us uh, as well. Um, but uh, to be able to gather in, uh, mus muscle enough to compete uh, outside. Uh, I think that the, the, the key point for us is integration. In many, in many ways, uh, it's not just about uh, uh, some spheres that could, uh, would be uh, evident for, for everybody, but in all the ways. Because if not, we are not going to, uh, to be able to, to compete. We are not. Uh, we don't have muscle enough to 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 uh, put ourselves in front of China or U.S. Uh, in the way of, of, of competitiveness. And I think that this is uh, the real key point. And besides. There's another point that for me was so important in the past, uh, from the very beginning when I was, as uh, Axel said, uh, on, char on, on charge of these ethical aspects of artificial intelligence, but, but moreover, uh, it's about, uh, and was touched upon uh, uh, slightly uh, before, uh, it's about the, 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 the skills of, of, of Europeans. It's about, uh, yeah, not just uh, uh, from the, from the, from the job, job perspective, but uh, in a general way, uh, we have to be able to uh, uh, spread some kind of massive uh, literacy for everybody about this uh, digital change. 
is uh, and I think that that, that, that the perspectives are, are, are quite plural it, it, yes from from the very beginning of of democratic uh, a democratic point of view and, uh, and, and, and equality of opportunities but at the same time because yeah we need uh, so uh, dramatically uh, people uh, uh, to, uh, taught enough in some of the of the abilities that we need for for, for gaining this uh, this digital race and it's not just about and I quite agree and I, I can't be more agree with with you about the movement inside the, the European market uh, labor market but we need even to create these uh, these uh, these jobs uh, and these these people that are prepared enough because we don't have these people uh, right now uh, we have a, a lacking of these uh, skillful uh, um, uh, professionals in every of the topics because we are not just talking about uh, programmation or we are not ju just talking about math, maths or science but we are talking of uh, of people that are uh, trained enough to uh, implement for instance artificial intelligence in, 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 in a court or as a lawyer and so on. Uh, it's uh, the same exactly be because the difference with the past is that this digital revolution is spreading all around, uh, all, uh, all the, 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 the little spaces that we are performing with, every day, in every topic, in, in every space that we are living on. So I think that we count uh, for the, or, or, or we have to, to deal with these uh, necessities for the future and the sooner the better. And uh, just a, a final remark, because I think that we, we need to, 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 to boost some kind of, uh, of, 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 of world reflection about uh, common, uh, common uh, shared values and common shared uh, uh, topics that may, may do a kind of, of worldwide uh, uh, common shared uh, regulation in, in the essential patterns uh, that I think that could be shared uh, from different parts. Uh, even even though the, the the case that not all the, the important actors in, in in races like artificial intelligence are, are democratic uh, countries, but even though that that we need this uh, common uh, common uh, ground that shared in the basic figures, no, I think. Makes sense. Luciano, in just a couple of minutes that we have left, I wanted to ask you about one of those shared values, which is uh, saving the planet and the way in which the uh, EIB is helping European companies invest in this kind of twin digital transformation, but also the climate transformation, and what kind of uh, financial help European companies can look for from the EIB uh, to help that march to net zero. No, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, I was referring a little bit to, to our um, array of instruments that we are deploying, but maybe I would focus on, on one specific uh, sector, and this is venture capital, because this is a space that is very, very different in Europe than in the US. Basically, Europe lacks the environment and the depth of market that, that is in the US. And if you look at the figures, these are staggering. If you take the funds in the range between 200 million to 500 million, you would have three times more funds in the US than you have in the EU. But if you go a bit higher, in the range of 500 million to 1 billion, you would have six to eight times more funds in the US than in the EU. So no wonder a startup would find much more financing available in the US, like five, five times more at least, uh, than, than in the EU. Mm -hmm. um, so in practice, what we at the AB Group are, are doing to support, to boost this venture capital space, is we are investing in funds typically 25-30%, so to provide a positive signal and to attract other investors to come in. 
this is the way we are operating. So when it comes to um, like technology funds, uh, there we also play a role of anchor investors. And we work a lot with these fund managers uh, when they want to structure their funds and we advise them on environmental, social, uh, corporate governance um, aspects, which are extremely important. So we are trying to, to go to net zero also in this space, which is not very well served for the moment in Europe. So we are trying to, to support that. Great. Terrific. Hendrik, you get the last word. Uh, good choice on your seating uh, location. I asked the last panelist if they could only choose uh, one thing for the EU uh, institutions to focus on in the next 12 months to ensure the success of all these efforts. Um, so I want to ask you to close us out by telling us what your one thing is, if you could pick only one thing for EU institutions to do in the next 12 months to ensure the success of all of the policies and all of the goals we've been talking about, what would your one thing be? I think in this time of fragmentation, geopolitical tensions, I think it's very important that the EU continues to uh, build international partnerships. And I think it's important for the EU to stay connected, remain open for business, open for investment, foster uh, EU investments outside of the EU and exports. I think there's a real risk that uh, given the current environment, uh, the EU becomes much more centered on itself, and so I would hope for, you know, more international partnerships. Great. Terrific answer and a great closing note for us. International partnerships are the key to it all. Uh, please, uh, everyone in the room, uh, join me in thanking our terrific panel and uh, the great discussion that we've had and all our panelists today. Um, let me thank our panelists and also thank all of you in the room who have joined us here in Brussels and all of you who have joined us online for this discussion. Uh, in person and online uh, for our event today. ITI looks forward to our continued partnership. I commend to all of you our Vision 2030 uh, document. You can uh, find the QR code for it online to check out some of the policy recommendations that we've been talking about today. Uh, and our, our website at itic.org is also available for all of you. On behalf of the whole ITI team, I'm Jason Oxman, and I thank you for joining us today and wish you a very pleasant afternoon. <laughs>